Good morning, ma'am. We're just looking to share some scriptures with our neighbors today. I'd like to share a scripture with you. Could I read this to you now, or could I leave something for you to read later? You may be familiar with the polite, quiet, and gentle door-knocking folk. Maybe they've come knocking on your door and asked to leave a pamphlet, watch a video, or read you a scripture. They're quiet, and they move around in small groups, so maybe they're often overlooked. But you can find them standing off to the side by train stations or busy streets, handing out pamphlets and books and talking of the watchtower. These are the Jehovah's Witnesses. This quiet group who read from the scriptures and keep to themselves have their secrets. And today we're going to be speaking with somebody who grew up as a witness, but has since left. She is convinced that the Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult who indoctrinated her. Our guest today identifies as awake. Her name is Sherry and she speaks to us about her experience. You're listening to Shut Up, She's Talking, and today we're speaking with Sherry D'Souza about recovering from religion. Sherry grew up as a Jehovah's Witness and was one of the good ones. One of the Jehovah's Witnesses that knocked on doors for 90 hours a month since she was 16. Sherry was devoted and it was truly the core of her identity. And so I wanted to start from the beginning with Sherry. I wondered at first, what does Sherry remember about her childhood? What was it like growing up as a Jehovah's Witness? Yeah, um, <laughs> just as you ask those questions, it's taking me back. <laughs> we were raised in Sydney until I was 14. Then we moved to Perth. So as a child, my memories of school are a little conflicted in that I recognise now as an adult looking back that it was hard to be at school, particularly because of being raised as a Jehovah's Witness, because you're you're taught as a child that you're different from everybody else. And you feel so much pressure to have to conform and comply with what you're told to be as a as a witness child. The the pressure is enormous. And it it, it felt like as a child there wasn't one day where you weren't switched on as a witness or where you weren't confronted with something that you'd have to make a stand on. So to give that a little bit more meat on the bones, um, I think it's commonly known that Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate birthdays, uh, Christmas, Easter, the whole lot of it, right, all of it. Or I should say none of it. Um, And for kids in school, that's actually really tough because you think how many times uh, your education 
is formed around those holidays. And especially as a little kid, you know, when you make Mother's Day cards or Father's Day cards or you make a little basket for Easter or, you know, all of those activities, you can't participate in that. Um, Every Monday I remember we would have a school assembly and at the school assembly we all stood up and sang the national anthem. I wasn't allowed to do that either. So it just felt like every day there was some confrontation. There was there was something that I had to make a stand on as a as a child. And no, I can't do that. And and the subsequent questions you get from kids are why? Because they think it's weird. Because it is weird. And <laughs> you're forced to try to defend something that you don't really understand as a kid. So yeah, childhood and school life was not easy. And and it just harder when you got to your teenage years because you had all of that still going on you also had the quite natural thing of puberty and development but in the religion you are given all of these messages about morality and what's right or wrong and for me what that did was freaked me out so that I could not have conversations with boys it just freaked me out completely so when you ask about what my teenage life was like that's the very first feeling that comes from that question um, was fear and just feeling very insecure uh, not confident There are many fundamental beliefs that I don't quite understand about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And maybe that's because I didn't grow up in a church at all. I grew up in a really atheist household. And so I wanted to know directly from Sherry if she could tell me a little bit about the religion that she spent so long practicing. Jehovah's Witnesses do claim to be Christian. So they believe in the Bible. They believe that the Bible is God's word and they take that as it's their manual for life. So if the Bible says do something, they do it. If the Bible doesn't say anything, they don't do it. So from that comes a lot of the um, reasons why they don't celebrate birthdays and celebrate Christmas. The Bible didn't say to do it. So default position is if, if Jehovah hasn't said we should, then we're not going to risk offending him by doing something that he may not approve of. Basically, that's what it boils down to. They don't believe in a trinity, so that's one of the major differences between them as a Christian group and other Christian religions. Uh, They don't believe that when you die, you go to heaven. They believe that if Adam and Eve had not sinned in the Garden of Eden, that God's purpose was for everybody to live on earth in paradise forever. They will use what they feel is logic of, well, if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit from the tree, where would we be now? So those that have died, they believe will be resurrected. They'll be brought back to life when the earth has returned to paradise. And that's going to be after Armageddon. So. This is another major feature of the religion is that they are a doomsday religion. They believe that Armageddon will 
cleanse the earth by genocide, by killing everybody, basically, and only Jehovah's Witnesses survive, and that after Armageddon, they will clean the earth, it will become a paradise, they'll all live forever, people who've died before will be resurrected, they believe it's all based from the scriptures. I would describe them as Bible literalists and they're, they're fundamentalists. Then it's not, it's not a religion that you just do on Sundays. It's not a belief system that you just pick up and do when you want and leave it at other times. It is 24-7. It's who you are. It's who you identify as. The origins of the Jehovah's Witnesses takes us back to the 1800s near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the USA. There was this group of students studying the Bible and they all met looking for a new way to worship. The leader of this group was a Charles Taze Russell. He was a religious seeker from a Presbyterian background and he had a bit of a reputation for writing scriptures on public wars and preaching to people as they walked past. He was reported to be quite a charismatic person. People liked him, they followed him and believed him when he declared himself God's mouthpiece. Jehovah's Witnesses do identify as Christian but have some pretty different opinions on what the Bible says and ultimately what they believe to be true. The early Jehovah's Witnesses believed that a battle on an apocalyptic scale would commence on earth that would end human rulership. The Battle of Armageddon, as they call it, has had many dates. They first thought that it would be in 1914, and this date happened to coincide with World War I. So for a while, or for four years at least, it sounded like they were really onto something. But 1914 came and went, and it failed to yield the Battle of Armageddon. And so, after that, they predicted a few more dates. 1918, 1925, 1975. And so, after a few failed attempts, they decided to abandon the timeline. So now, with no timeline, they are just constantly on the lookout for what might be the last days on Earth. Can you imagine, as a child, being told that there is going to be a battle of Armageddon, a battle so huge that you will be joining Jesus's heavenly army and the world, as far as you know it, will cease to exist? It's the end of the world. It's terrifying. How do children process this in the religion? There's no Sunday school, right? So the kids are exposed to everything that the adults are taught. Um, so as a child, you see all of these illustrations, and it's even in the kids' books anyhow, that are just horrific. I can remember um, one of the books that depicted an account in Genesis. It was after the Israelites had left Egypt, was Moses and because of this rebellion against Moses in Genesis, God's punishment was to make the ground open up 
and swallow all of these. That's and that's actually the word the Bible uses. So in in this literature, they had depicted that the ground opening up and people falling into this gap and and they're screaming and and arms you know and legs everywhere and you can just imagine that I remember that picture so vividly from my childhood and yes it scared me so much so that anytime there was a thunderstorm you'd think is this is this Armageddon Jehovah's Witness teenagers go through the same angsty years as we all do. But the only difference here is dating. (laughs) It's a little bit different. You don't just date one witness. You're really involved in the whole congregation the whole way. I mean, the elders know what you're up to. I asked Sherry what are Jehovah's Witnesses' rules around dating. No sex before marriage. That's immorality. And you can be disfellowshipped from the congregation if you have committed this sin, if you've committed fornication before marriage. Uh, And if you're disfellowshipped from the congregation, that means shunning. You are then shunned from everybody. So knowing just that simple thing, I mean, there's lots of other rules that we can dig into, um, it makes you so scared that you could put the foot wrong. And if you put a foot wrong, the repercussions are severe. So, um, yeah, that, that was one of the main teachings that influenced how you interacted with others in your peer group. Um, and because you're so repressed, and I'm talking about sexual repression in this instance, uh, it inhibits your ability to effectively communicate. So, yeah, I did find that really quite challenging on top of just all of the other normal pressures that you have as a teenager. The the context of being raised in such a insular religion that, um, you know, and everybody's watching everyone, right? So if you... Uh, observe talking to a young man in the congregation there's immediate gossip going on straight away of they might be interested in each other and if you are then interested in each other and say you legitimately are and you start courting uh, the assumption is that that's going to lead to marriage and if it doesn't there can be like if you break an engagement um, that's considered quite serious Sherry survived dating life and married a good Jehovah's Witness man that she legitimately fell in love with. And so Sherry and Sasha were happily married, dedicated to their church, and life seemed to be good. But Sherry's life as she knew it was about to change forever. It wasn't until my late 30s that I started to observe inconsistencies, particularly in our local congregation and how things were being done, and I thought, it's not quite right. Um, But the real test didn't come until 2015. 
uh, when it was discovered that my husband no longer believed and I wasn't aware that he had actually deconverted. Uh, he was exposed in, in a rather dramatic fashion. Um, at the time, we had a young witness girl working for us and um, Sasha was already awake. Just to let everybody know, some of the language I use is very ex-Jehovah's Witness heavy. So this expression of awake is because we have felt that we were blinded and we didn't really see what was going on in the religion. We didn't know that we were being lied to. So we call the process waking up. So my husband had been awake for a few years, but he hadn't told me because he feared what my response would be because the word apostasy, the word apostate has been demonized within the religion. And, and if what does you that have, word mean? Well, if you look at a dictionary, Alice, it's really mm. quite simple. It <laughs> just means that you've changed your mind, you've changed your view, and it's most often applied within religion that you become an apostate of a religion because you've left it, but it can be applied in other contexts too, political um, fields, uh, you know, all sorts of different scopes. Now that I understand what the word means, I like to often say that Jesus Christ was an apostate because he was Jewish. He was raised in the Jewish faith, founded Christianity. He therefore was an apostate to Judaism, if you're really looking at the meaning of the word. But in Jehovah's Witness world, that word apostate means you are the worst of the worst. You've not just changed your mind, you've turned your back against Jehovah and against the religion and you are now the wolf in sheep's clothing and you are wanting to draw people away from the religion after you because you just you are now the most evil of the evil and you just want to destroy people's faith you just want to tear them down <laughs> so with that kind of attitude and having been raised with that my whole life when I discovered from this witness girl that we had working with us she had looked on Sasha's computer and found that he had been on apostate websites and when she found that out she went straight to the elders in the congregation and told them did she bypass to... you oh completely bypass me yeah you wouldn't have had a look in there no didn't have a look in at all, and neither did Sasha for that matter. So we found out the next day when she resigned and uh, the elders had had an emergency meeting in the morning to discuss Sasha, uh, and he had to tell me that afternoon that he had been looking at apostate. Well, he didn't use the word apostate, of course. He just said he'd been looking at websites, and he offered to show me, and I was freaked out because in my head I had that a word running through my head and I it was frightening really really frightening wow how did so you it, respond to Sasha oh, that weekend Alice was just emotionally painful for both of us we'd been married at that point for 16 years and we loved each other dearly and I was trying to grapple with, you don't believe anymore. And 
he was trying to be as honest as he could to the questions that I was asking. And I wanted to know how far it went. You don't believe that this is the true religion. What do you think about the Bible and God? And he's as delicately as he can saying, I've got serious questions about the Bible and I'm not so sure about God. There was a lot of tears. There was the poor guy on the Monday. So this all happened over the course of a weekend. On the Monday, I had to go to work. It was my custom. I would always call him as I left work. I'm on my way home. And he was in tears. And I, what's wrong? I, what, what's, what's the problem? And he said, are you going to leave me? He was scared that I was going to leave him. Because ironically, in this religion where they're so obsessed about sex, not having it, they're obsessed about relationships, um, they only say that you can divorce if there's adultery. If you divorce for any other reason than adultery, you are not scripturally free to marry someone else or be in any other kind of relationship. But I knew, and so I knew that if I wanted to leave Sasha over this, this is one of those loopholes where I would be supported from the congregation because my husband is now an apostate and he would be endangering my spiritual welfare. And so it would be carte blanche, you know, sure, if you want to leave him, go for it. And he knew that too. But there was no way. I was just, I was so, I was very shocked. I was horrified at how the congregation was handling it. And not once did anybody ring me and ask how I was. There was no phone call, no text message, nothing. And I knew they were all talking about it because it's sensational gossip. Mm. But, and that's um, your family and your friends as well. That's right. That's right. So it was a, it was a very tough time. To leave the religion is to leave everything you've ever known. The Jehovah's Witnesses, unlike many other faiths, actively encourage families to shun those that leave. So going means never speaking to your family again. Sherry and Sasha have been shunned by their family and friends. They do wait patiently, though, in case anyone changes their minds. But for now, they are being shunned. I asked Sherry, what's life like for the family remaining in the religion after they've shunned their loved ones? Oh, well, they're sympathised with. They're, um, so Sasha's father, um, he's shunning us now quite heavily. Uh, in March this year, he's just cut contact and won't talk to us, won't. It's really watching what's happening to Sasha on distressed for him because he did have a close relationship with his father. How his father will be treated is one who is showing loyalty to God. He will be commended for shunning his son. Um, he will be viewing this as persecution, his test that he has to endure in this time of the end before Armageddon. It's Satan making it hard for him 
he sees having any contact with Sasha as us trying to make him change his religion. And even though we've assured him that it has nothing to do with that, we don't continue. We'll be the first to encourage you to continue. That's the um, that's the narrative that is made for them and that they follow. For Sherry, though, the choice to leave was not sparked just by her husband's disfellowship, but secrets within the Jehovah's Witnesses that had not yet come to the forefront were now being published, spoken about and broadcast all over the world. After Sasha had been exposed, we stopped attending meetings because I was just so disgusted with how he had been treated and how nobody had bothered with me, so why bother? But it wasn't until November 2016 that I then woke up and that was after I read the findings report from the Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Response of Child Sexual Abuse. Case study 29 was devoted to Jehovah's Witnesses and that was released on the 28th of November 2016. I read it on the 30th and the moment I read it, I knew it was true what the report was saying and I knew that this religion could not possibly be a true religion and be guilty of what it was guilty of. The commission had found that as they did all of their investigations into all the different religious groups, whatever groups, organisations, they would subpoena documents. This is the Royal Commission I'm speaking about. So they subpoenaed documents from the headquarters here in Australia in Sydney for any records that they had from 1950 up until 2014 that they were keeping about any allegations of child sexual abuse. And the organisation complied and, and forwarded all of these documents, all this information to the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission then found that they were keeping records of 1,006 perpetrators, alleged abusers, affecting 1,844 children and not one of them had been reported to the police by the organisation, not one. I was horrified, absolutely horrified reading that report and I couldn't understand why God's organisation would have to be told by Satan's organisation how to protect children. So that was it for me. That was the straw that just broke the camel's back. And I I went home that night and said to Sasha, it's not the truth. And that, that's pretty hard to go through when you've identified yourself as a particular religion and it's so encompassing. It's everything you are. And then you realise that's all false. You You literally feel like your whole world has collapsed and you have to somehow rebuild and put it back together again. You, the identity crisis you go through was, um, was really hard. The Jehovah's Witness organisation in Australia 
recorded 1,006 perpetrators that were directly abusing children. Their total membership is 68,000. And the victim list of these perpetrators just in Australia is 1,844. That's 1,844 victims of child sex abuse within a membership of 68,000. And not one of these cases on record had been reported to the authorities. The investigation dug deep into child abuse in religious groups in Australia. And it had the Catholic Church at the centre of those investigations. But what they found along the way regarding the Jehovah's Witnesses was a stunning record of abuse. And it sounds as if nobody really expected that. An investigation found there to be 4,444 child sex abuse perpetrators within the Catholic Church in Australia. And this is amongst a membership of around 5 million. Now, I'm not in any way comparing two religions and saying one is worse than the other, but the numbers tell a story here. Numbers will in no way represent the emotional torment that happens in these situations, but it may be able to paint a true representation of the scale of abuse within the Jehovah's Witness organisation. And these figures are, by the way, only Australia. But the Catholic Church has a membership of around 5 million and child sex abuse perpetrators made up around 0.08% of the Catholic Church membership base. That is already way too high. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a membership of around 68,000 and so the percentage of the congregation involved in child sex abuse is around 1.5%. So if we just look to these percentages as an understanding of how significant these child sex abuse cases were within the Jehovah's Witness community, it really paints a vivid picture and a substantial number of perpetrators. But this investigation was really just scratching the surface. There has not been an international investigation into Jehovah's Witnesses The Australian Royal Commission was thorough, probably the most comprehensive look into child abuse within that organisation, but still it's managed to be swept under the rug within the institution itself. I asked Sherry, how were the huge number of allegations of child sex abuse allowed to be ignored within the Jehovah's Witnesses? The organisation has rules that it filters down so the main headquarters is in New York it's ruled by a governing body of eight men currently and they communicate out to the organization how they are to handle things but it's quite secretive Alice so in each of the congregations you'll have a body of elders all male and they are trained They're given instructions and policies on how to handle things that nobody else in the congregation is allowed to see. You're not allowed to to know what's in their handbook. But in those handbooks and in the letters that are sent to the elders are instructions on how to handle matters like child sexual abuse. And currently, to this date, the first instruction is called the legal department at the headquarters. As soon as you get an allegation, go straight to them. They will tell you 
what you should do when that is not what should happen. It should be get on the phone to the police and let the police do their job on sorting out what's happened here. If you want to then take some action in the congregation after the police have done what they have to, knock your socks off. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is that these, it's so hard to get across the culture of this religion and what it's like in the congregations and how how logical it is to you as a witness that when something happens in your family, no matter what it is, you immediately think of going to the elders with that problem. You don't think of accessing any of what the government provides to its citizens. It's just not even an option. So, But what that does is it creates situations where abuse happens and where abuse is covered up. And it's not, and I don't say just to belittle it, it's not just child sexual abuse, but there are problems with domestic violence as well. So if if a woman is being abused by her husband and she goes to the elders and tells the elders, see, again, the problem, she's gone to the elders with this problem instead of availing herself. Yeah, exactly. The elders will then tell her, well, perhaps in essence, it's not worded like this, but in essence, if you were a better wife, he probably wouldn't abuse you. It's victim blaming 101. So again, because they're Bible literalists, they take scriptures in the Bible that talk about the headship arrangement, that Jesus is in subjection to God, then men are in subjection to Christ, and women are in subjection to the man. So, yes, that that is the way, that's the whole, and and it's subtly the propaganda in their watchtowers, in their printed material, in their online material. Now they're doing a whole lot of videos. They've been doing videos since 2014 now. The level of propaganda, it's off the Richter scale. It's just the messaging is so harmful. The amount of suicides that happen when young ones particularly are cast out of the congregation and they can't handle the shunning and ostracism. All of a sudden, their entire network, their their families, their friends, everyone is gone. No one will talk to them. And if they haven't worked out that the religion is one big lie, they've got that rejection, fear of now being in the world, It's just a recipe for disaster. After this Royal Commission report, and with the public knowing how horribly mishandled child sex abuse allegations were in the Jehovah's Witnesses, I wondered if they'd been instructed to change their methods of handling abuse. This was what was so amazing about what the Commission did. Because the work of Angus Stewart, who was the senior counsel to the commission at the time, and he had a team of lawyers with him researching, the amount of work they did, they researched for about 18 months to two years, reading and reading and reading material from the organisation. What came out in that findings report revealed that they understood what I'm struggling to describe, that culture, they got it. 
they understood it. So when they got to the end, what the Royal Commission recommended, they gave three recommendations to the Jehovah's Witnesses to make their organisation safer for children. The first of them was the two-witness rule. Now, the two-witness rule, this is, again, Bible literalism. There is a scripture in Deuteronomy 19.15 that describes a scenario, basically, where back in the Israelite days, if someone had an accusation against somebody else and they wanted to take it to the older men of the village to have them adjudicate it, the older men would not listen to an accusation unless there were two people bringing it. You had to have two witnesses to whatever it was. And when Christ was on the earth, apparently he said something along those same lines too. So they take this literally, Alice, that you have to have two witnesses. And if you don't have two witnesses, they can't take any action within the congregation to disfellowship or reprove or whatever the case is. Now, the Royal Commission realises, of course, that in child sexual abuse, you are not going to get another witness. So their ruling was, their very first recommendation was get rid of the two witness rule. If you want to have it for adultery or whatever other rules you've got, that's fine. You keep your two witness rule for that, but don't, not for child sexual abuse. So that was recommendation one. Recommendation two, <laughs> hit at another aspect of the culture and that's the patriarchy that it's male dominant that there is no female representation for a support to child abuse victims and survivors can you imagine as even a an adult realizing what's happened to you as a child and you have to report this to three men and they're going to ask you, they're going to ask you the most inappropriate, damaging, traumatic questions in their quest to find out, is this abuse or were you actually complicit? It, it's so horrific. So the commission said you have to provide female support. And if you're going to investigate these claims, you must have women as part of this. You've got to provide support. So that's the second. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure you can already work out how successful that's been. And then the final recommendation was in regards to shunning, that if you have someone who has been abused as a child, that later on in life they just can't, they can't deal with being in the congregation anymore. It's just too traumatic. They've been traumatised by the way the elders mishandled it they're just, it's too much for them. They're leaving. Don't shun them. You are adding to the trauma. If you want to shun everybody else that leaves, whatever, but not victims of child sexual abuse. So that was published, as I said, the 28th of November 2016, with those three recommendations. Each year since then, in December of each year, the Royal Commission does a progress report and sends it to the, the government listing all of the recommendations and which organisations have embraced them and which ones haven't. Here we are in 2020 
and I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear at all that Jehovah's Witnesses have not implemented any of the recommendations, and nor do they intend to. Something else on this note. Because of the work the Royal Commission did, the government then instituted the National Redress Scheme, and that was to help victims get some compensation towards their mental health care and just an acknowledgement that they've had something terrible happen to them and that the institution involved failed to protect them, an apology from that organisation and some compensation for that. Now, the Royal Commission, or the government actually, invited all of the institutions involved to participate in the redress scheme and there was a deadline on the 30th of June 2020 this year that all of the organisations had to indicate that they were going to be part of it. Again, it won't surprise you, Jehovah's Witnesses have refused to participate in the redress scheme. They won't have anything to do with it. Do they think that it's the devil's interference in the holy scriptures? It's persecution. See, Christ said that his followers would be persecuted. So, yes, they do see this as a form of persecution. Protecting the reputation of the organisation is more important to them than protecting children. So when I realised all of that, I can't be part of an organisation like that. It's that level of corruption. If I had stayed, I would feel complicit. Not, couldn't do that. No way. I know too many. I've known too many that have had such horrific things happen to them. And the organisation. Are these people that you've met once you've left? Are these and stories that you know past twenty sixteen when you left the religion? No, some of it I knew as a witness, but I thought it was isolated. I thought it was just a one off. I didn't. I didn't know how much of a problem it actually was. Um, even reading the, the reports, so the Royal Commission had two um, testimonies of survivors. And as I read one of those testimonies, I realised I knew her abuser. I, I knew that family. I knew the elders involved. I, I was so disgusted at how those elders treated her. It was it was clear they didn't believe her. It was just horrific, absolutely horrific. So reading that, it yet yeah, really rammed home <laughs> um, when I knew a lot of the people that were involved. Mm. And after all of that, why do you think people stay and defend? Mm. Well, see, they don't know. They don't know. They've been told a different version than reality. So my parents, my father, um, I tried to talk to him about it when I was first coming out. And he says, oh, but we've been told we were the best there. He wasn't the only person to tell me this. Quite a few others, they've been told that Jehovah's Witnesses were outstanding at the Royal Commission. 
so they don't think there's anything to look at. The truth is they were actually the worst there, that out of all of the organisations involved, only one did the Royal Commission say, you are not a safe organisation for children, and that was Jehovah's Witnesses. So they're ignorant, Alice. They don't know. They don't know, and they're, they're told that any claim by someone saying this is what's actually happening is apostate-driven lies. It's not true. So they don't know how bad it actually is. The current coronavirus is a pandemic of some might say biblical proportions. And for a religion that is desperate for doomsday, absolutely gagging for the last days to be here and to join Jesus's heavenly army for the Battle of Armageddon, it may not be surprising that messages from the Watchtower are literally jumping for joy. And COVID-19 has presented an opportunity to induce fear and excitement in the congregation that the last days are upon us. The witnesses particularly, um, that's the one I can speak about, and I'm sure, though, that it's happened in other groups as well because how can you not? We all need therapy from 2020. It's just oh my gosh. Yeah. been an incredible year. Uh, so, yeah, right from the get-go, they, the Jehovah's Witnesses were, it's time of the end, you know, Armageddon's really got to be close now because look at this pandemic. And it actually caused some ex-Witnesses to go back. Really? Yes. The organisation, I just saw, sorry, no, I'm starting sentences and then stopping as my brain's firing all over the place. Um, every year they have a convention. It's a three-day convention. And it's the same program, essentially, all the way around the planet. Now, obviously, this year they couldn't do it in person like they normally do. So they did it over Zoom and they had governing body members mainly and some of their helpers uh, doing all of the program the talks one of them actually said that isn't this wonderful you know 12 months ago we would not have thought of having meetings via zoom now because of the pandemic they, they tried to imply <laughs> that jehovah had prepared his organization for the pandemic by way of zoom I know, no. I know. No. I was screaming at the TV. I was screaming at the TV when they said, I'm like, okay, so hang on a minute. <sighs> Jehovah looks into his crystal ball and realises that in 2020 there's going to be a pandemic, right? And he thinks, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll look after my people by getting them to use Zoom. Not instead of, how about we stop the pandemic? No. And so the, the speaker was actually saying, aren't we looked after by Jehovah? Doesn't he look after us unbelievable so yeah that they are bleeding it for all they can so the events unfolding around us are making clearer than ever that we're living in the final part of the last days undoubtedly the final part of the final part of the last days shortly before the last day of the last days If you didn't quite pick up on that subtle message there, 
That's Stephen Lett from the governing body of the Jehovah's Witnesses saying that the last days are here. The world is coming to an end. It's the last days of the last days of the final part of the last days. And he predicts the coronavirus is the end of the world. But many Jehovah's Witnesses have marked world events as the beginning of the end before, as the Great Tribulation. World War I, some also claim 9-11 and also the Ebola pandemic in West Africa. So this isn't really too surprising that COVID-19 is the new last days, but it's interesting to think of how this pandemic might be used as further manipulation to a congregation. After being the model Jehovah's Witness, and now the ultimate apostate, I wondered how Sherry describes her current beliefs. Having gone through deconverting from Jehovah's Witnesses, I owed it to myself to then really analyse religion as a whole, look at the Bible and critically think, what evidence did I have to believe that the Bible was God's word? What evidence did I have to believe that there was actually a God? And so after I went through and analysed that, and I read a lot of books and I listened to podcasts and I didn't want to be dogmatic anymore and say I knew because I don't know. So if I was to give myself any name, I would say I'm an agnostic atheist because I don't I don't believe there is a creator, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it and say there definitely isn't. I don't know. There, if someone can present evidence to me of a creator, of a God, then I'll want to know. I want to look at that. What I can say is I don't believe that if there is a God, that it's the God of the Bible because that character is truly horrible and not worthy of worship. Now that Sherry has left the religion she calls a cult behind, she uses her experience to help others. Sherry volunteers for Recovering from Religion in Australia and her next mission is to help others who are going through a similar experience to her and her husband Sasha when they were shunned by their family and when they were leaving their old lives behind. I asked Sherry if she could tell us a little bit more about that and what people need when they're looking to leave a religion that they've completely lost faith in. There needs to be support and recognition for people that come out of, and I'm not just talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm talking about any high control group that has these kinds of behaviours. To leave, they need a lot of support. Um, and so I've uh, become a volunteer with an organisation in the States called Recovering from Religion um, because that's what they do. That's That's the whole idea is to make sure that people don't have to be alone going through this, that they've got support that they've got hope, that they can actually get through this. And I'm wanting to to expand on what recovering from religion does in the States. I want to bring it all here to Australia um, so that I can turn my experience uh, into something positive to help others. 
Another thing that, that Recovering from Religion started was the Secular Therapy Project. And this is another thing that I'm trying to build here in Australia. Secular Therapy Project, in essence, is a register of licensed mental health professionals uh, who are not going to tell you to pray about it. They're going to only use secular evidence-based therapies in treating you and they have experience in exactly this field. There is actually a syndrome, it's called religious trauma syndrome, work done by Dr. Marlene Winnell, uh, who recognised that this was a particular niche area um, that needs attention. And so the Secular Therapy Project has individuals that are trained and interested in religious trauma. Sherry is the first person to bring the Recovering from Religion group down under, and it's going really well. They've been running Zoom meetings throughout COVID-19, and they're trying to get the word out there that support is there for you, no matter what background or religion or cult history you might have, people are here to help you through it. I asked Sherry what she most likes about her volunteer work. I like being able to give people a platform where they can purge and get it out to a group of people who get it. We understand. We know where you're coming from. And to give you that little platform of here, tell us, and we can reflect back at you that we understand, that's that's healing. And it gives you hope that you can get through this. And you can become an amazing person and have a happy life. Live your best life now. Don't wait for it. I'm starting to recognise how much the religion repressed me as a woman and didn't let me even think about having potential to do other things. So now I'm really excited because I'm starting to recognise my own potential, what I can do, and I'm starting to get involved in that. That makes me very excited about the years ahead. I just, I want to enjoy it all. I want to, I just want to help as many people as I can and, and carpe diem. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry's new life as an apostate is something she would never have imagined as a young, devoted witness, and she's had to make huge sacrifices for her new freedom. Talking about religion is always a tricky subject, especially if, like me, you're not religious and have at times completely ridiculous questions. But I think it's okay to ask questions, and I guess... I just try to remain sensitive to the topic and really listen to the answers that people give you. You can check out Sherry's interviews and the work she does by heading to Recovering From Religion and you can find those links in today's episode notes. You've been listening to Shut Up, She's Talking. I'm Alice and that was Sherry D'Souza. Thanks for listening. <laughs>